Well, morning, everyone. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, your word is a challenge to the comfortable and a comfort to the challenged. And so, Lord, we pray that as we listen to your word now, that your word would do its work in each of our hearts as each one of us has needed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the common frustrations in living in the modern world is that there are so many things in our lives that are are, are new and, and different and just they weren't there in the Bible. They weren't there when the Lord Jesus came and walked amongst us and preached amongst us. And sometimes that can leave us feeling really high and dry when it comes to living for Jesus in the world that we find ourselves in. Uh, So let me take uh, driving for an example. There's no chapter of the Bible that you can open up and learn how to drive your car as a Christian person. Uh, There's no commands that you can read. You know, there's nowhere is it written, uh, thou shalt indicate before merging. Or, blessed is the man who does not tailgate you on the Mitchell Freeway when you're already doing uh, the speed limit. Thank you very much. You know, there's just no verses like that in God's Word, as much as some people could use them. Uh, And nor are there any kind of vaguely equivalent kind of relatable circumstances. There's no part of the Bible that tells you how to drive your chariot, for example, Uh, one that maybe we could take some principles from and carefully apply. Uh, But here's the thing. If we're willing to listen to God's Word, if we're willing to trust God, uh, if we have hearts that really want to please Him and walk in His way, then very quickly we'll discover that the Bible says more than we think. The Bible says more than we think. And so, yes, there's no chapter on driving a car, but in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, God's people are instructed to obey their governments. Uh, And so I need to obey the road rules. And, you know, those uh, little numbers inside the red circles, they're not suggestions. They're actually rules that I should obey, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, for the Lord's sake. Uh, And likewise, Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to to love our neighbour. He warns us against the danger of anger. And surely that applies just as much when I'm behind the wheel of a car as any other time. Uh, And when I was a young man too, I remember uh, one of the senior saints in the church taking me aside and uh, teaching me what to do when it came to buying my first car. Uh, He said, don't buy something, you know, nice and sporty and small with two doors, like all young men like me were dreaming of. He said, no, buy a big car with lots of doors and a big boot so you can drive people to church, take people to camps, take people to conferences, go to beach mission with it. It was a really good talk, actually. I really appreciate it. He had this whole kind of ethic of car buying built built around generosity and, and serving other people. It really changed my whole perspective. See, the Bible actually does say a lot more than we think when we begin to take it seriously, when we, when we use a, a little bit of imagination and a little bit of work to, to think about it. We can actually develop a whole theology of driving and even car buying uh, based on what the Bible says. As we think about all that it has to say, as we gather up all the little verses that, that might apply. And that's what we're doing in this topic of work uh, over these, these weeks. Last week we began, we've got uh, today, and we've got one more to go as well. We're gathering together uh, different parts of God's Word and, and thinking through it all to see if we can't uh, work out how we should work in our world today. Uh, and last week we did have a look at Genesis chapter 2. It was a great time together. Uh, we looked at work as God created it in the beginning. And in particular, we found that God actually has a really broad definition of work. Uh, Work is most definitely not just paid employment. It's not just what we receive money to do. Uh, Work is actually 
everything that we do to make this world good and flourish for human beings to be a part of. Uh, Work is the creative use of our God-given talents and abilities and resources in the service of other people, all under the direction of the one who gave us this creation world as a project to complete. Uh, And so lots of things will work, we discovered. You know, the the mom who stays at home to raise children, that's work. uh, Mowing the lawn is work. Washing the dishes is work. Uh, You know, all the things that we do throughout our life that often we don't think of, they, they are part of what we do as work under the Bible's definition. And it was a very servant-hearted view of work we talked about last week, seeking the good of others. Work wasn't actually about me. It wasn't actually about my meaning or my significance or my identity. It certainly wasn't about getting the most out of other people for my own gain. Instead, it was about what I can give, what I can contribute. I actually saw this again this week. I was Uh, reading through the book of Ephesians, and uh, Ephesians 4.28, the thief must no longer steal, they must no longer take. Instead, they must work with their hands so that they have something to give. There's another little example of the very servant-hearted view of work that the Bible actually has for us. We talked about a lot last week, didn't we? It's well worth going back and having a listen to, even if you don't mind me saying so myself. but even though, even though this uh, topic of work is more than just paid work, uh, it is also about paid work. Uh, we can't talk about work without discussing, you know, that thing that we often go off and do, our, our, our nine-to-five jobs or whatever hours it might be that you work in that way. Uh, and in particular, we can't talk about work without discussing that key relationship that is so much part of paid work, the the relationship between the employer and the employee. And so that's what we're going to do today. I know not everyone is in paid employment, and I know that some people do work for themselves. There's always people in the world, I find, who'd much rather work 80 hours for themselves than 40 hours for someone else. Uh, That's very true. But most of us in our lives, at least for part of it, will be part of an employment relationship. And so that's what I want to talk about today. So do open up the outlines that you've got there. Let's have a look at what does God's word have to say to us as workers, uh, as, as masters, uh, and also what it says overall to us as we think about this topic. But before that we get there, we do need to just talk about a little bit of context. Because why are we in Ephesians 6 this morning? Uh, why am I saying that Ephesians 6 has to do with paid work? Isn't it literally about slaves and masters, which feels a long way away from what we do today. Uh, And there is, I think, some baggage that we bring as we come to some of the slavery passages in the New Testament. I think that when we think about slavery so often in our world today, uh, we cannot help but think of slavery as the 19th century phenomenon, uh, particularly as it was practiced in the United States of America. Uh, and that was race-based slavery, uh, on, dependent on an appalling slave trade that was often practiced with terrible cruelty. It involved kidnapping people, taking them from their homes and making them slaves. And very sadly, that uh, still goes on today. Uh, and we are also aware, I think, that that terrible institution was gradually abolished under the influence of Christian statesmen like William Wilberforce and, and others. Uh, that kind of... of slavery, slave trading or kidnapping as it's often known, that is consistently condemned in God's word. Uh, 
There's no way in which uh, what went on in the United States of America in the 19th century, no, no way that that practice of slavery can in any way be justified from God's word. But it is a mistake to think that the institution that we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 6 is exactly the same. Uh, slavery in the ancient world, slavery in the Roman world was very different. Uh, it wasn't always hard labour. Only a very few of slaves ended up as kind of gladiators or glad galley slaves or something like that. Uh, most slaves were domestic slaves serving in a household setting. Uh, they were a symbol of luxury and of wealth and of good standing. Uh, it was never based on race. Uh, some slaves were prisoners of war in the ancient world, uh, and, but many of those who were slaves were those who'd gotten themselves into debt and couldn't repay them, or those who were being punished for non-violent crimes. Uh, nor was it free labour. Most slaves were actually paid, even if what they were paid was going off to, to pay off their, their slave price. Uh, nor was it lifelong. There was always lots of ways in which a slave in the ancient world could achieve freedom. Uh, many a slave could expect freedom after seven years, and Roman law said that a slave could expect to be freed at least by the age of 30 at the latest. And nor was it something that made you part of a permanent underclass of people. Uh, at one point in time, uh, the city of Rome, 80 to 90% of the population were slaves or former slaves. Uh, slaves had rights under Roman law, including the right to be cared for and to be looked after. And so this was an institution, an institution designed to solve certain, certain social problems. Uh, social problems that we have now uh, and that we still don't necessarily have ideal solutions to. Uh, after all, what do you do with people who can't pay their debts when you, you, know, when you don't have things like laws of bankruptcy? Uh, and what do you do with, with people who do turn to crime in order to make a living? This question of slavery, it is a little bit more complex than we might think at first glance. Uh, now, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, I'm not trying to suggest that slavery was a wonderful thing and everyone wanted to be one, and uh, not at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, no one would dispute that freedom was better than slavery, and even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, you know, if you can, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Uh, no one would say that being a slave was a desirable condition. And yet, in that world, there were certain jobs that you could only do if you were a slave. Uh, slaves were part of the family. They were part of the family business. Before, as we talked about last week, the modern separation between work life and home life. Uh, and so for some people, slavery was also a way of advancing themselves. It was a way of, you know, particularly if you'd failed to advance yourself in other ways, it was a way of being part of a successful business. It was a part of uh, of getting a kind of social standing or even getting an education, making uh, different economic opportunities come your way by submitting yourself to a master and becoming part of their business. Uh, it was also a way of gaining job security, uh, which not many people had in the ancient world. A very big deal in a culture where most people were reliant on daily work. Sure, as a slave, you couldn't quit, but at the same time, you knew you'd have food tomorrow, as long as you did your work. You had a master who was obligated to look after you. For some, slavery, it really was. It was a commitment to serving a master for the sake of advancement. Now, in a world without labour laws, without careers as we think of them, without companies and corporations, you know what that sounds an awful lot like to me? It sounds like a career. Uh, 
slavery was a commitment to obeying your master for the sake of security and advancement. What is career if it's not a commitment to obey your company or your firm or whatever it is for the sake of security and advancement? And when you put it like that, they begin to sound very similar. Now, sure, of course, there's some very important distinctions. Uh, we can quit. Uh, we can hand in our four weeks' notice. We can, we can leave. Uh, we can negotiate our pay and our conditions. We can call out bad behaviour. We can do all sorts of things that are good. Although not everyone can do all of those things, can they? Uh, not everyone can quit. Uh, some of you here, I know, you, you signed agreements when you went to university that you would work in country medicine or work as a country teacher for a number of years. Uh, it's part of the way that you got yourself educated. Uh, you made yourself a slave uh, so that you could get ahead so that you could get what you wanted. You know, it, it, when you think about it, they, they begin to sound quite similar in lots of different ways. Just kind of think about that as you head off to work tomorrow morning, why don't you, slaves? But the point here is that there is a context to these words in Ephesians, a context that's not quite our own, but that means we shouldn't dismiss what they have to say without thinking about them first. So what do they say? Well, what is, what is the word to workers, first of all? Come to Ephesians chapter 6, would you? We finally got to the passage. Um, and if I had to summarise this passage, I would say that it's saying, workers, obey your earthly masters as you would obey the Lord, as you would obey the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there in verse 5. And earthly masters, look after your workers, reward your workers as if you were the Lord, in the same way that the heavenly master rewards you, as it says back in verse 8. And these are really strong words. There's a strong idea here that this relationship between a worker and master is a, is a kind of parallel of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. And straight away, we begin to notice this is very strange. There is a, a very curious imitation of the gospel that is going on in not just this passage, but the two little passages that come before it as well. Uh, the gospel is here not just a, a message of salvation to all who would believe. It's not just the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternal life. It's also the beginning of a relationship. The beginning of a relationship where we follow the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience and faith. And where he continues, as he has on the cross, continues to love us and to care for us, to listen to our prayers, to, to answer them. It's a relationship, and a relationship that will go on forever. And that relationship here is used as a model for three other relationships. So come with me back to Ephesians 5, verse 22, because there you'll see that, again, the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his people is used as a model for the relationship between husbands and wives. And if you go a little further on to chapter 6, verse 1, it's a bit more implied here, but I think, again, too, that same relationship is used as a model for the relationship between parents and children. And then, of course, lastly here, it's used as a description of the relationship between slaves and masters. And there is here, I think, a really important lesson about the practicality of the gospel, about just how applicable the Apostle Paul thinks it is. 
Uh, that when we are hearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we, whenever we're, we're studying and thinking and, and praying together, even singing together, what it means for us to relate to the Lord Jesus Christ, what it means for us to be his people, even when we feel like we're obscure and we're a long way from practical life, the Apostle Paul says, no, you're not. Because everything that the Scriptures teach us about our relationship with Jesus has at least some application to these three pairs of relationships. Relationships that I would argue are the most significant relationships that we have here on earth. Incredibly significant words, incredibly practical the gospel is. Anyway, back to Ephesians 6. So here is a a pair of reciprocal and, and linked instructions describing a relationship. And if both sides do as instructed, if both sides imitate Christ and his church, then we can see that this would lead to the best possible slave or worker relationship with their master and vice versa. So have a look at verse 5. Let me read now. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eyes on you, But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or free. Workers ought to be obedient to all that their earthly masters might require. And in saying this, Paul does set their obedience into a whole new context, Again, there is a little bit of a play on words on this chapter because the word master there in verse 5 is the same word that is used in both verse 4 and verse 8 to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our master, our heavenly master. And so our earthly masters, whoever they might be, they are just that. They are only our earthly masters, our earthly lords. We do now, now, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, have a heavenly master, a heavenly Lord, a master in whom our life is now hidden whilst we wait for his glorious appearing. And so even as I do work now for an earthly master, what I need to do is I actually need to look beyond the earthly master and see behind them the heavenly master and realise that by serving the earthly master now, Ultimately, the one that I am serving is the heavenly master, is Christ, who will repay all wrongdoings and in whom there is no favouritism. Now, some of us work for bosses that very much do deserve a good day's work, and some of us don't. And for those people in the room who happen to work for me, I'll let you decide which one of those two things I am. But it doesn't matter. Because beyond all of our earthly masters is the heavenly master. And ultimately, we are working for him. And this is quite striking, isn't it? Becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ actually strengthens our earthly obligations. Whereas we might be tempted to think that a, a new allegiance to Jesus might weaken them. Our obedience to earthly masters is not compromised by Jesus being our Lord. It's put in good order. It's redeemed. Our obedience is not just eye service to to win their favour just while they're watching. We don't perform well in just those few weeks before the performance review is due. 
the quality of our obedience and our work should not depend on whether or not we are being watched. But instead, it should be with a good attitude. It should be wholeheartedly in verses 6 and 7, knowing that ultimately it is Jesus that we are serving. He's a, a great little story. I know I've told this before a long while ago, but, and this is one of those stories, I don't even know whether it's true, but preachers, just, preachers are always telling stories that they've heard from somewhere and they don't know whether they're true. But I heard a story about a, a man who went to run a mine in Papua New Guinea after the Second World War. He was a retired soldier uh, and he found that he had some really great workers. Uh, they were fantastic. They did a great job except when he wasn't there, except when he wasn't watching. Every time he kind of ran off to town for supplies or something like that, they would all kind of sit around and do nothing. And so what he did is he, is he, he popped out, he had a glass eye from an old war injury, so he popped the eye out and put it on a stick. And all of a sudden they worked really hard because the boss was, was always watching. Uh, and then one day he came back to the, to the work site um, and he found that they'd all gone home for the day because someone had snuck up behind the eye and put a can over it. And so then now he couldn't see, and so they all, they all snuck off. But no, it, it's not that case, is it? Uh, our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, doesn't pull us away from our, our earthly obligations. Uh, they don't kind of pull in two different directions. No, instead the Lord Jesus Christ, who is redeeming our universe, uh, does not pull us out of earthly relationships but instead calls us to live in those relationships under him, uh, loving him and trusting him. Uh, the obligations of human relationships are reaffirmed. Uh, and they're reaffirmed both in the relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children and even here in the extreme case of slavery. Whatever we're doing, we're doing it not just for an earthly master, but we're doing it for a heavenly master. And our allegiance to Christ should mean uh, that we, we are better at it. Or we're more committed to it. We're more faithful as we approach it. But being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ should make us better husbands and wives, better uh, children and parents, and, and certainly should make us better workers. And it is an interesting little historical tidbit that in the Roman Empire, Christian slaves often attracted a higher price uh, because they were considered more faithful and more reliable. In fact, when I was, I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't help but remember those uh, stories of Joseph and Daniel that we have in the Old Testament. Now, Joseph and Daniel, they were both slaves. Uh, they were both uh, men tremendously gifted by God. They were both men that raised, uh, were raised to incredibly powerful positions despite the fact that both of them were slaves. Uh, both of them were slaves, but it was their faith in God that meant that they were completely trustworthy and completely reliable, and they were constantly a blessing to their masters, and that's why they rose to such high position. And I can't help but think that amongst all the other important things that those stories of Joseph and Daniel teach us, they are also an example to us of the kind of reliable and faithful workers that we ought to be. Now, there is also a limit here to human obligations and to earthly masters. After all, why do we obey earthly masters? Well, because of the authority of the heavenly master. Because Christ reaffirms their authority and redeems our relationship. So what happens if there's a conflict? Now, what happens if our, our earthly master tells us to do something that is in conflict with what the heavenly master commands? And the answer is, well, I'm only obeying the earthly master because the heavenly master has commanded it. So, of course, I obey Christ. 
Of course, I listen to him. I must obey him. But we must also expect and even accept the consequences we might receive from the earthly master. And so in Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter and John, they're arrested, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, and they're commanded not to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do they say to the Sanhedrin? They say, well, you can flog us, you can imprison us, you can do all sorts of things to us, and we'll accept that. But the one thing you can't do is tell us not to proclaim Christ. And in the same way, we cannot be commanded by our earthly masters to do something that the heavenly master would not have us do. So, you know, in the workplace, uh, the, boss, the boss tells you to lie. The boss uh, tells you to do something wrong, tells you to, to cheat a customer or, or whatever it might be. And what do you do? Well, you don't do it. You refuse to do it. You explain to them why it is that you can't in good conscience do this thing that you're being asked to do. And then you accept whatever the penalty of that is. And so if you get fired, well, you rejoice and you praise God that you've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot always expect to be treated fairly by our bosses, even as we are trying to do the same, we're trying to do the right thing. Now, what is being described here, it's a reciprocal relationship. And when both do as, as the Lord commands, it's easy to see how positive it could be. But the faithful and reliable work we put in as Christian workers will not always be rewarded, we're warned. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 actually tells us much the same as these verses, but say that not only do we obey the kind and considerate master, we even need to obey the harsh and demanding one. But even if our earthly master is harsh, Paul reminds us our heavenly master is not. Verse 8. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Jesus knows that ultimately, when we obey our earthly masters, it is him that we are obeying. And ultimately, he will reward us. And that's the word to workers. Literally to slaves, yes. But I hope that we can see immediately that there's lots of really helpful things in there for us. Uh, but what about the word to masters? Because there is one to them as well in verse 9, isn't there? Only a brief word. Let me read it to you in verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Uh, do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And so just as the heavenly master does, we're told, reward each one for whatever good they do, so too those who are earthly masters should, in the same way, reward each one for whatever good that they do. Uh, earthly masters should treat those who work for them fairly and, and justly and, and kindly. Because earthly masters who are believers also have a heavenly master. And in fact, their heavenly master is the same heavenly master as those who are working for them. Every master is also a slave. That's what we're being told. Every master also has someone that they are working for, right? not just the person who's on the next rung in the corporate ladder, but a heavenly master, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they serve and are accountable to. 
And notice again that the heavenly master does not do away with power, does not uh, do away with earthly power, but instead brings it under his rule. The powerful are still powerful. But now earthly power must be used and exercised with justice and with fairness. They too must know that it is the Lord Christ that they are serving in all they do. And they too must know that it is the Lord Jesus Christ they are to imitate in all that they do. And so therefore, an earthly master should abandon all use of threats against those who work for them. Uh, this isn't saying that somehow we ought to you know, never give feedback or never manage performance or never warn where there is a problem. That's not true. But it is a rejection of all forms of manipulating or abusing or demeaning or, or terrifying those who work for us. Uh, sadly, the tools that were used by slave owners in Roman times. But just as workers have been instructed to show respect and sincerity of heart, so too now masters are instructed to do the same and to do so without favoritism, just as the heavenly master deals with us without favoritism. And there's the word to masters. But what about the word to us? Let me kind of try and bring all of this together really quickly for us. Uh, what is God's word to us? I do think, I hope you can see that there's much application in all of this to us. I do hope you can see that. I do hope you can see that this is almost a how to drive your chariot sort of thing. There's lots here which we can transfer over and think about as we think about our, our lives in modern workplaces, even though the situations are not exactly the same. Uh, we do have freedom, some freedom at least, to choose our earthly masters. Uh, we can quit, we can find new work. Uh, but whatever the case is, most of us will always uh, find ourselves, at least part of our lives, under an earthly master or being an earthly master, and for some of us, being a bit of both. So it does always help us to remember that whatever our situation in paid work is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we are serving as we do it. The heavenly master. Paid work is not all work. Let's not abandon the lessons that we learnt last week. But all work, even our paid work, as workers or as masters, is work for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the big lesson that we need to learn. Uh, there is a real sense in which all work is God's work. Uh, Martin Luther, in one of his, his commentaries on the Psalms, in about Psalm 145, he notes that God promises to feed all of his children. And how does God do that? Well, very occasionally he does it miraculously with uh, five loaves of bread and two fish uh, on a mountainside. But most of the time, it's actually through the ordinary means of, of rain and of sun, of farmers and of, of butchers, of, of the hard work of, of doing all of those things. Uh, there is some sense in which they too are doing God's work of feeding his children. Or Psalm 147, verse 13, God strengthens the gate of the city, brings it security. How does God do that? By sending his angels to patrol the streets? Not usually. Uh, usually it's through the ordinary means of judges and police and military and things like that. The ordinary day in and day out jobs that we do do in, to keep life safe, to keep uh, things flourishing and, and going and, and keep people healthy. There is a sense in which all of those things, they are God's work. 
They're all part of, of God's general work in caring for and building up this world. All people, including all Christian people, are caught up in that work. And God sees it. And he will reward it. That's important for us to remember, isn't it? Important for us to keep in our minds a, 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 an understanding of who it is that we are working for. Who it is that we are serving, even as we serve our earthly masters. And of course, as God's people, not only are we caught up in that work, we're also caught up in another work that we're going to talk about in a few weeks' time. We're caught up in God's special work of building His world to come. But I do want to say that if we work like this, if we work as Ephesians chapter 6 teaches us, there actually is two results out of this, I think, that come our way. One is very practical. Um, if you are the kind of person who does this, who works for your earthly master as if you were, are working for the heavenly master, uh, well, if you do that, earthly masters will be falling over themselves to employ you. You'll be so faithful, you'll be so reliable, you'll be so trustworthy, you'll be so productive uh, that they'll be falling over themselves to, to employ you. They'll, they'll want you to be, to be part of whatever organisation it is. And if you are a master like the heavenly master, then people will be very happy and very satisfied and will find that they want to work for you. And in fact, will find that they want to work hard for you as well. Uh, these verses are actually very practical. But they're also liberating. Because if we think about our work like this, then we won't be controlled by our earthly masters. We won't be controlled by their opinion of us. We won't going to go home at the end of the day worrying about what the boss thinks of us or how he might treat us. We won't go home imagining the, the, the awful worst scenarios that, that they could inflict on us because we know that actually we have a heavenly master who will treat us right. And Paul, he wants even the Christian slave to realise that they have a freedom in Christ, and so too do we. They may have an earthly master, but by their obedience to the earthly master, they have a freedom to serve Christ and to do everything in his name. There can be a temptation to somehow imagine that maybe what we do is we trot off to work, as we go to the office for another day or wherever it might be, to imagine that somehow this is a complete waste of time. What am I achieving? What am I accomplishing in this? But there is a sense in which, as a Christian person, we do have a freedom to say this too is service to Christ and is honouring to Him. And the truth, it's true for us, isn't it? Yes, we have some wonderful freedoms in this country. We have uh, freedoms around which jobs we do. We have freedoms about which careers to pursue. We have freedoms to negotiate for better wages. We have some wonderful freedoms. But no freedom is better than knowing that ultimately what we do, we can do for Christ. And we can honour him as we do it. That's a wonderful freedom. In Christ, the Christian worker is redeemed from a life of rewardless effort, whatever place they sit on the organisational chart. Faith in Christ even changes that about us. By obeying earthly masters, we are freed to serve Christ, which means by obeying earthly masters, 
we are also free to enjoy the rewards of Christ. Remember verse 8, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. The inheritance of eternal life with God the Father in the new creation through the one who died and rose for us is one of the greatest things we have been promised. But one of the other sweetest rewards that our heavenly master has promised that when we go to meet him, we will hear from him those beautiful and gracious words. Well done, good and faithful servant. I saw what you did. I know who you were obeying. Now come and let me reward you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for what your word teaches us about this part of our lives. Lord, we thank you that it teaches us more than we think. We do pray, Lord, that you might help us to know that it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we are serving in all of our lives. And that even as we obey earthly masters or even as we seek to be a good earthly master, ultimately it is you that we serve, you that we honour, you that we glorified. That you, the one who died for us, now will reward what we do in your name. And Lord, we thank you for the great work that you have given us to do. And we do pray that you might help us to do it as if to the Lord Jesus Christ, who did the great work for us. And so we ask all this in his name. Amen.